I'm Guy Kawasaki, and this is Remarkable People. This episode's remarkable guest is Ronnie Lott. Ronnie is one of the best players in the history of the NFL. After a successful college football career at USC, he was the first round draft pick of the San Francisco 49ers in 1981. Over his 14-year career, he played for the 49ers, Los Angeles Rams, New York Jets, and Kansas City Chiefs. In his rookie year, he helped the 49ers win Super Bowl 16. He played on three more 49er teams that won the Super Bowl. He was an All-Pro eight times, All-NFC six times, and All-AFC once. He was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 2000, the first year he was eligible. Many consider him the best safety in the history of the NFL. In 1985, he crushed the tip of his pinky when tackling Timmy Newsom of the Dallas Cowboys. Surgery would have prevented Ronnie from starting the 1986 season, so he did what anyone would do. He had the tip of his pinky cut off. After his football career, he became a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley with 49er teammates Harris Barton and Joe Montana. He also owns a Toyota and a Mercedes dealership. Although he is one of the hardest hitters and toughest players in the history of the NFL, he used the word love more than any other remarkable people guest. And finally, he drops many names of football players and coaches, basketball players, and other athletes. If you're under 25 or so, you may have never heard of them, but suffice it to say that when Ronnie drops a name, that person was pretty remarkable in their time. This episode of Remarkable People is brought to you by Remarkable, the paper tablet company. Yes, you got that right. Remarkable is sponsored by Remarkable. I have version 2 in my hot little hands and it's so good. A very impressive upgrade. Here's how I use it. One, taking notes while I'm interviewing a podcast guest. Two, taking notes while being brief about speaking gigs. Three, drafting the structure of keynote speeches. Four, storing manuals for the gizmos that I buy. Five, roughing out drawings for things like surfboards, surfboard sheds, and office layouts. Six, wrapping my head around complex ideas with diagrams and flowcharts. This is a remarkably well thought out product. It doesn't try to be all things to all people, but it takes notes better than anything I've used. Check out the recent reviews of the latest version. I'm Guy Kawasaki, and this is Remarkable People. And now, here's the remarkable Ronnie Lott. How is your left pinky these days? My left pinky, it's fine. I think one of the interesting things about life is you you have these moments where people will walk up to you and you find yourself not realizing that they're kind of looking down at your finger. <laughs> <laughs> and so you're trying to figure out why. And sometimes I forget that they want to know if it's true. And yeah. I think what I realize in life is that People do hear the story, but the story has become a story that now is that I bit it off or somebody chopped it off. And so the story has grown and it's a tall tale. But at at Halloween, I tell people this all the time at Halloween, I get a fake finger. And when people come over, I go, oh, here it is right here. So you do have fun with it, and you do, and you do realize that the tail continues to grow. But in sports or in life, we all have moments where 
we do something to make sacrifices because we understand that's what we do in life. We have to make sacrifices. I live a couple blocks from Willie Mays. So now I know I can go to his house for baseballs and your house for pinkies. That's good to know. (laughs) (laughs) Was it just the tip or you cut the whole thing off? No, just the tip. (laughs) And when you go to tackle somebody, the thing that you don't realize, if you don't get your hand out of the way, that your chest can become like an anvil and the helmet, when it hits the finger, can be caught between your chest and the helmet. In this case, all the things had to align, and, and they align. And when they did, uh, the next thing you know, I'm running off the field screaming and hollering because I hadn't seen that much blood in a long, long time <laughs> in my life playing the game of football. Usually in sports, you know, everybody goes, oh, I've seen that injury before. But no, you don't see <laughs> You don't see somebody snapping their pinky in half and snapping the bot, you know, the tip of your, you know, of the finger in half. And so, yes, you do have strange moments that happen on the field. That's still better than Joe Theismann's injuries. (laughs) When I saw that, like a lot of us, we didn't know and we didn't expect it and we didn't believe that it could come back. And he did all of those things. And I think one of the remarkable things about the human spirit is that we can see devastation, but we can also see moments where we can find ways to get back and find ways to fulfill our opportunities to try to be our best self. When I was growing up, I played football too, and I just loved it. So I'm not a Ronnie Lott, but I loved football. What did football mean to you when you were growing up? You know what's funny? Because when you said that you loved it, I could feel the spirit of how you loved it. And the reason I can feel it is that I can go back to when you felt that love and that passion and looking at kids across from me and realizing that, man, how cool is this that we got a helmet on, we got shoulder pads on, (laughs) we look like pro football players, we're really not pro football players. And there was something about the love of being able just to put on the uniform. And then the love of understanding how to compete and the love of understanding how to try to win and the love of understanding that you're going to lose and and dealing with those issues. And the beauty of it is that I've heard stories that you've heard of the greats like Willie Mays, where they do certain things, they would sleep with their glove or they would make sure that certain things that were rituals that they had to do all the time. We all have rituals. We all have moments. I had to have vanilla ice cream (laughs) before each game. (laughs) My point to you is that all of it was due to actually getting in the presence of the love of the game. Looking back, what would have happened if you and Marcus Allen didn't enter school at the same time what would have happened if you played offense wow when i look back rooming with him and being around him and being around all the guys at usc that i found myself in situations where i was in awe and yet at the same time i found myself realizing that i was just a kid from this little town called Rialto. And you you really didn't know 
what that felt like to be in, in uh, around guys like that. And so I remember sitting there thinking to myself, and a lot of people would say, I heard that John Robinson said that you could have played offense. And I laughed because I never had any want to of wanting to play on that side of the ball. I mean, I didn't have any of that in my blood. So I'm glad he didn't choose me. <laughs> and I'm glad I didn't have to go on that side because I just, I, I love, I love being a defensive back and I love having a chance to play basketball at USC. And those two things that I had a chance to do probably were two of the greatest things that I've experienced in sports because it was awesome playing with Dennis Smith and Joey Browner and Jeff Fisher and Willie Crawford and Herb Ward and so many great guys that you think of playing with all those guys and you realize that all of those guys were really special. On the other hand, I used to sit there and watch Marcus and he would come home and he played fullback. And there were days that I looked at his body and I and I said, "Oh my God, this, you mean people are hitting you and they're beating you up like that?" And he would look at me and he would say, "Yeah." And I remember sitting there going, "Oh my goodness, I couldn't believe how tough he was because the sacrifices of playing fullback and blocking for Charlie White, and then when Charlie left, all of a sudden now he's the tailback." I think that moment in his life of being a fullback made him even a better running back. But clearly, as a roommate, I used to sit there in awe because I never, I never thought that people got hit that hard <laughs> and people got beat up like that. But, Ronnie, there is some irony there in that you crushed a lot of people, so you caused a lot of injury and pain like that, right? I look back at those kind of moments of not necessarily crushing, but going back to the thing that you talked about when we first got on, the love, the love of trying to be your best. The one thing that I loved about being around Marcus, one thing I loved about being around Dennis, and the one thing I loved about being around Eric Scoggins is the love we had of trying to be our best and having fun and enjoying and loving each other and that's something that even at this moment in my life at 62, when I call Marcus, I love it because I love him. I love being around him. I love how he inspires me. I love the things that he talks about. And I miss Eric Scoggins, who passed away from ALS. And I love when I talk to Dennis Smith. And my point is that you hope that you leave this world with those kind of loves in your life and those kind of relationships in your life. So you loved your teammates. Do you think that you loved your teammates so you guys became winners or you were winners so you loved your teammates? Oh, great question. When I went to the Jets and playing with the Jets, we lost and it wasn't fun. And yet, I love being around Pete Carroll. I love the way he talked about ball. 
I love the way he talked about the game. I still love when I call him up. I love talking to him about life. I love what he tries to let you know about the quest of living. And I love that because to me, it's authentic. It's real. Not every person that I bump into or that you come in contact has that authentic love for their particular sport. Now they love it. They love it. They say they love it, but then you have some people that there's this, you know, notion when you look at Bill Russell and you look at Will Chamberlain, they both loved it. But Bill had this way of showing you how to love it even more. And that was the thing that I grew up watching, that people loved it even more. And that's what Jim Brown and that's what certain guys that you met, Deacon Jones and all these guys that you would meet, that they had this other kind of love that's really special. Since you mentioned Jim Brown, is is this a true story that Jim Brown told you to get off his grass? <laughs> yeah, that's a true story. It's a true story. And it was funny because we were at USC and uh, we're going to a party at his house and we're trying to get into the party and it's Marcus, Dennis Smith and myself. And we're trying to all get in. We're trying to figure out, man, we got to get in. We're, And we're standing outside, and somebody tapped me on the shoulder. And I turned around, and it was Jim. And he said, hey, man, you got to get off my grass. <laughs> and, I, and, you know, in your life, you forget, <laughs> you know, which there are moments in people's lives where somebody does that. And you go, yeah, <laughs> and you get off the grass. <laughs> But when I saw it was Jim, and the the the, the thing that I, I remember was not what he said. What I remember was the aura of who it was. Mm -hmm. And and the aura of not only who he was and who he is, and, and, and when I'm still around him, I feel the same thing. The thing that's special to me was there was now that connection of saying, man, I hope one day I want to be like that. <laughs> I haven't told anybody to get off my grass, but <laughs> I wanted to well, I wanted to just have a relationship with Jim and a relationship with Jim about not the game, but really to understand the game of life. And throughout my playing days and even throughout my life, he is, from that, that time, he has been instrumental in being a teacher, an educator, a mentor. And I look forward to the Hall of Fame to see him to just be around him. And I, I look forward to seeing a lot of guys at the Hall of Fame because there's a lot to learn and there's a lot to understand and there's a lot to how you got to finish your life like they finished their lives and like how they're living out their lives. And so 
I'm just trying to model Mean Joe Green. I'm trying to model some of the guys that I've played with because it's important to model those people. Can I ask you to put modesty aside for a second for this next question? (laughs) Ronnie? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. I'm going to put it aside. Okay. So do you think you changed football by showing that players could be big, fast, skilled, and hit? Look, what I tried to show is the same thing that Mel Blunt tried to show or the same thing that Mike Haynes tried to show. And what I mean by that is that I have this thought in life about exhaust every moment. And and Pete Rose, when you watch him on the field, he exhausted the game and he played as hard as he could play. Marcus played as hard as he could play. Jim Brown stopped playing because he felt like I could go do something else to exhaust my life. And I've just been around those kind of people where you watch Kareem Abdul-Jabbar exhaust every moment. Magic exhaust every moment. Michael exhaust every moment. And what's interesting about all of those people, when you watch them, like Tiger, when you watch him, you go, there's something more about not just how they play, but they live their sport. They live their passion. They live to try to always, to always try to be a marksman. They have that Navy SEAL commitment and I think that's an important aspect in life. My uh, dad, he wanted that commitment of making sure that when I shined his shoes, that it was not just shining the shoes, but you were giving me your best effort of shining his shoes. And I see a lot of great athletes do that every weekend. (laughs) That's the beauty of, of life. I look for that. When I'm sitting, when I'm looking at any games, I'm looking for the guy who he jumps out at the screen and he's Roberto Clemente. And you're sitting there looking at Roberto Clemente and you're going, huh. Or you're looking at Willie Mays. So my life has been around watching all of those kind of guys do the, um, the impossible. And it's all due to effort. And I love watching that happen. And what's interesting to me, it doesn't matter what sport. doesn't matter who the athlete is. doesn't matter when Brandi Chastain did her thing. And she knows I'm one of her biggest fans. <laughs> but I'm one of her biggest fans because it was electric to do something and to achieve something. And to know that in that moment, it was all her moment. Or Christy Yamaguchi, to do something. Or Harry Jennings, to do something. Like all of those you know, ladies have done. To me, I can see that in them. 
That's why when I'm around them, I feel what they feel. And it's a really amazing thing. And that's why when I'm, I'm, you meet a lot of incredible people that are athletes. And what I think is really interesting, sometimes you don't even know what to say to them, but you know who they are. You've seen every move. I remember meeting Larry Bird. I was like, <laughs> and and I remember thinking to myself, man, I know every move. I've seen everything. <laughs> and you just in, are in awe of the moment because that's how you feel about their greatness. ago you talked about their grit and their effort you didn't mention natural talent so what separates a Larry Bird a Ronnie Lott from every other person who has a lot of talent whether it's Larry Bird or Michael Jordan whoever I used to watch bowling <laughs> and Dick Weber and Dick Weber man well Dick Weber was rolling that ball, man. Dick Weber was amazing. My point to you is that everybody is trying to give their best effort. Arthur Ashe is giving his best effort. And you got to appreciate the nuances of all the efforts that everybody's bringing. And they all come in different flavors and different colors and different thoughts and ideas, are you focused on that spirit? I've always been focused on the spirit of understanding that. And some of our great leaders over the years, you could feel their spirit. And that's why when you're around them, that it feels like they can walk on water. Can you explain the mental differences between playing cornerback and safety? Yeah. One position is like literally playing basketball against Michael Jordan every day. And that position is so tough because sometimes the guy can out-rebound you. Sometimes the guy can out-quick you. Sometimes the guy can out-juke you. Sometimes the guy can outdo a lot of different things. And, and what makes a receiver like Steve Largent so amazing is that sometimes they're inside your soul and you don't even realize it because they know how to get away from you at certain situations. And when you cover like a guy like Steve or you cover a Charlie Joyner, they're not imposing, but they just have this art of understanding how to get open. And it's so funny. One one game we're playing Steve Largent, and man, we're double, triple teaming him because we don't want him to catch a ball. We wanted we want to be the team that stops him from catching a ball. And he ends up catching a ball, and it made me realize that 
We did all of this, and we still couldn't stop them. And the point is that that's the greatness of some people. Their their ability to, even when you're at the last moment, to still find a way to make that play happen. That's why Jerry Rice is phenomenal. That's why Joe Montana is exceptional. Because even those guys will tell you, that don't don't count me out. Don't count me out. I'm going to find a way. And what I loved about competing with them in practice is that that's how they live their life. I mean, it's it's funny. Joe still lives his life. People don't realize he, he's he's in a venture business, but he really wants to beat everybody. <laughs> and so he's trying to get into every great deal just because that's his spirit that's his competitive nature of wanting to be great at everything he does so i i started this asking about cornerback versus safety so were you <laughs> describing cornerbacks or safeties just now when i think about both guys one guy at at the cornerback position is trying to find a way to be one-on-one, the safety is, is Paul Blair. The safety is Willie Mays. The safety is, I'm trying to think of some of the great basketball defenders. The safety is a guy who is doing a lot of different things, and he's trying a lot of different ways, whether it's in the run game, whether it's in the passing game, you can find ways to disrupt a lot of what the offense is trying to do. And that's due to understanding what they're trying to do and why they're trying to do it and taking certain things away or being able to be the extra man in the run game where everybody's going, how did he get there? A lot of it's anticipation of understanding why people are going to do certain things. And are you willing to study to understand all the nuances. And and my point is that the game is also a game where you got to know everybody's position. You got to understand what everybody's doing on the field. And you got to understand why Joe Montana is going to call for that certain route. You got to understand why Dan Marino might favor a certain guy. There are just things that you have to recognize. When I watch sports, Even today, when I saw Tom Brady make that throw in the Green Bay game right before halftime, I was like, ooh, that's special. (laughs) Because he saw something that nobody else saw, and he went for it, and he made it happen. And you said, that's what champions do. They find ways to beat you when other people are not even thinking about that moment. Including your own teammates who you played against in practice. Toughest receiver to cover. Look, Jerry Rice, first time he walked on the field, I was, I was still playing corner at the time, and George Seifert said, hey, go cover him. And Jerry ran like a, a shake, which is you run up the field and you run – like you're going to go to the corner, 
but you then bring it back to the middle of the field. So when he went like he was going to the corner, I was like, of course he's going to the corner. This is a rookie. He's not going to go back inside. And he ran, he ran back inside, and he was wide open. And George said, so what do you think about that? <laughs> I hadn't seen anybody as a rookie be able to run pro routes. And, and the hard part about running a pro route is coming out of your break. Most young players can't come out of their break because that's not a skill set that they work on. Or most players, when you get to the sideline, in college football, all you have to do is get one foot in. Jerry Rice, from the time he walked in, he would do this thing called a rat-a-tat-tat. And the rat-a-tat-tat is he would tap his feet every play that he caught the ball going towards the sideline. So imagine, imagine at 30 years old, he was still tapping his feet (laughs) before he would go out. So literally from 21 years old, 22 years old, for eight years, for the rest of his career, he would tap his feet. Most human beings don't brush their teeth that much, right? (laughs) Here's a dude that tapped his feet every time. And my point to you, that's how great he, that's how great Jerry is and will always be because he did things that nobody else could do and nobody else even thought about. Same question, toughest quarterback. Toughest quarterback. The toughest quarterback, I played against Joe at Notre Dame. Joe, Joe's pretty good. <laughs> Joe was pretty good. Yeah. I don't know why he went in the third round. One game we played him, the ball didn't hit the – it didn't touch the ground in the second half. So we're playing him at SC, and we're beating him 21 nothing. In the second half, he came out. And the ball did not hit the ground. And I remember sitting there thinking to myself, that's a bad dude. <laughs> and and then the play then to have a chance to play with them was yeah, remarkable. Not only remarkable because he was a great player, but remarkable because you started to understand the kind of person he he uh the person he is and the person that he wants to be and the person that he continues to be. And so I think that he's got to be up there with any of the other quarterbacks that I've ever, I've ever competed against. And the other guy that had a lot of that was Dan Marino. Dan was a very talented guy. Very talented guy and could throw the lights out of the ball. He was, to me, like Roger Clemens. He just had a little oomph that came off his ball, and he was one of the great passers. John Elway, one of the great athletes. I still I have friends that come up to me and said, hey, you remember that play that he threw on you against when you were at USC and he threw the ball over your head and – 
Yeah, I remember. You don't have to remind me. <laughs> so, yeah, John Elway. Okay. Amazing. But those those three right there, I would say, are pretty phenomenal quarterbacks and great athletes. But no Tom Brady? Look, to me, Tom Brady and what he's done, and, and, and literally he verified that this year by winning. He's the best quarterback because he's made people better. And there's something about all of those guys that I just mentioned. They make people better. They make the receivers better. They make their teammates better. They make everybody better. They make the coaches better. They hold the coaches accountable. They make everybody better. And there was a great moment when Bill Walsh was calling out Bubba Paris, and Joe stood up and said, hey, hey, whatever, he's fine. I'm taking care of it. And I remember sitting there going, he didn't have to say anything. He didn't have to do anything. But it made me realize how he had his back. He had Bubba's back. And that kind of moment made me realize, man, Joe had a lot of people's back for a lot of reasons. And, and it's not usually for the reason of just being a good friend. It's for the reasons of how he respects you as a person. What makes a great open field tackler? A great open field tackler, you got to understand the nuances like you're getting in the rundown. And what I mean by a rundown is like in baseball, you have that run back and forth, back and forth. If you're trying to get that guy down or you're trying to tag him out, you better understand all the things that he could possibly do. And so a great open field tackler, as you're coming up to find a way to tackle that guy, you're trying to know everything about him. Now, here I am, I'm telling you what you're supposed to know. And I remember Marcus Allen, I wanted to kill him. And I was looking, I mean, I mean, literally, I'm, I'm, he was a rookie, and they're playing at our park, and I'm getting ready to knock that crap out of him. He doesn't see me. I know he doesn't see me. And I'm coming towards, the, I'm coming towards him on the sideline. He, he darts back inside. I'm flying through the air. I missed him. And after the game, man, I'm, I'm like, hey, man, I want to kill you. He goes, I know. <laughs> he goes, I know who you are. I know, who, I know what you were trying to do. And it made me realize that you got to be cognizant of what people are thinking and how they're thinking and why they're thinking it. And a lot of times, as a great defender, you're trying to understand what's going on in their minds. And one of the great things about sports, and I've watched a lot of games where you're sitting there watching basketball and you see the two greatest players on the court and you would sit there watching these two great players, Jerry West, going up against John Havlicek. And, and my point is, in sports, you're constantly finding ways to try to 
understand people. So a great open field tackler is always consciously knowing that as he's coming up to try to tackle him, he's got to calculate all the nuances, whether it's Bo Jackson, whether it's Eric Dickerson, or whether it's Earl Campbell. You better calculate a lot of different things about each one of those guys because all three of them are going to have different thoughts and different dimensions and different ways of how they're going to attack you. What is the physical price that you're now paying for playing for 14 years in the NFL? That's a great question. Mentally, when I think about that question, mentally, I am constantly always trying to be overly conscious of my mental health because I think the stress of playing, the stress of competing, the stress of losing, the stress of pain, the stress of all of it, I want to floss a lot. And I'm constantly trying to make sure that I'm not doing things that could be hurtful. Now, as a dad, (laughs) as a dad, there are some times that I'm a dad. And sometimes being a dad doesn't allow me to possibly put myself in situations where I'm being the ideal dad. Now, the ideal dad sometimes in my mind is a different, you know, person. Now, according to my kids, my kids have said, dad, can you slow down? Can you back off? Can you do this? Can you do that? And my feeling is, no, because that's how my dad was. My dad didn't back off. My dad was, and to me, the best dad in the world. And I love my dad for all the things that he made me do and the things that he taught me how to give my all. And I'm hoping, like we all are, You're trying to mentally continue to focus on being your best. And so when I think of what the question you asked, yeah, I didn't talk about the finger, but I got to deal with my shoulder. (laughs) I got to deal with my knees. I got to deal with things that certain injuries that I had during the games were tough. They were challenging having your shoulder dislocated and then popping it back in. No, that's tough. And sometimes people don't understand. You mean you did that? Yeah, because I've seen the body and I've seen how people have, I've seen great athletes that I've watched before me play and do certain things. So if they could survive, I could survive. And I've been very blessed to be able to live here in the Valley. And what I love about here in the Valley is that it's allowed my mind to continue to evolve like your mind. And if you think about your mind from when I met you to where you're at today and knowing what you've, the journey and the relationships and the people and the things you've seen. And here we are talking about 
AI and all these different stuff. And you're going, I got to learn this. I want to know this. I want to be around. And my point to you is that, isn't that great that we still have a chance to expand on our knowing about the knowing of, of a lot of people. I've never met Elon, but I have friends that know him. And to me, the thing that I would want to know is what keeps him up late at night. And, and the reason I would want to know is that I, I laugh because I'm sitting here thinking to myself, when you're around certain people, you want to know. I, I want to know what George Roberts is trying to do right now in his life. The point I'm making in life is you should want to know a lot about a, a lot of different people. I want to know a lot about a lot of different people. I want to know a lot about some people that are like, you know, some of the venture capitalists because why do I want to know what they, Hey man, somebody's pitching them an idea about something that's going to change how we think about the world. It's not that I'm going to be able to solve the issue. What I'm going to be able to understand is there's a, a new horizon of how we think about data that nobody's ever thought about. And what I think is really interesting to me about that is that there's some kid right now at Stanford or at Harvard or at USC. And what's interesting is that that kid is probably sitting there going, hey man, I'm here to change the world. I'm here to try to find a uniqueness of, I met this guy who's at Cornell and he played football at the University of Washington. And now he's a professor at Cornell University. And I was like, you go from the University of Washington to being a professor at Cornell. And I'm like, wow, that's, that's, and, and we talked about football, but we also talked about what he is. And think about that path that he's taken. Yep. And it's unbelievable. So, I think it's interesting when you, you meet interesting people that are that are still trying to learn and still trying to get better. Maybe you can explain to us how you made the transition from football to business because you have done that extremely well. To me, I don't know if I've done it well, but I have done it in a way where I'm open to, to try to understand and I'm open to understanding how to play with a lot of different relationships and people and I've learned from all of these people around the idea, like I learned from Joe and learn from Jerry or learn from Eric Wright or learn from Carlton Williamson or learn from Dwight Hicks. You're learning from everybody. And in business, I think I'm constantly learning. How we sell cars today is totally different than how uh, we sold cars in 2000. 
It's just totally different. There's a whole different language, a whole different methodology of how you go through the process. And my point is that we're constantly evolving and things are constantly evolving. You have to find ways to evolve. You have to find ways to get better. And and that's why Charles Haley and I are doing something on mental health. And he's like, man, I wish that I had known some of the things about mental health today that I didn't know when I was playing. And my point is that we're always trying to get better. And he's trying to get better and I know with yourself, that's what you do. You're optimistic on the idea that there are things out there that I saw something last night on 60 Minutes, the robots. And I was looking at these robots and I was like, they were dancing. <laughs> this is amazing. But the evolution of what of computing power has changed. It's, it's allowed us to do a lot of different things. And so perhaps more controversial question. If you were playing today, would you take a knee during the national anthem? I wouldn't. Why not? I wouldn't because my dad, my dad would, my dad would kill me. <laughs> That's I a good reason. <laughs> it's a pretty simple thing for me. That's just the respect that I pay to my dad. Okay. In terms of what I have seen and what I know and what I've watched, look, when Dr. Edwards and Tommy Smith and John Carlos did what they did, were they right? Yes, they were right. And they were right because in this world, just like Jesse Owens was right when he did what he did, I can go down the list of moments in my life where people have done things that some people have said, no, that's not right, but they've done it because it is right. And right meaning that your compass, all of us have a compass. All of us have compasses. And I have some friends that have had a compass that they've had still because they didn't believe that it was fair, that they couldn't get what they needed to get to survive in this country. And, and so is it fair? No, it isn't fair. Is it right? No, it's not right. But survival does certain things. Justice does certain things. And we all have to understand that a lot of times in this world, you got to be able to have the right compass. And the compass, you know, to me, the compass starts with your beliefs and your feelings about what's right and wrong. And when you think about the justice, the just of life and the justice around it. Am I willing to make all the same sacrifices that others are making? I got to play my role in trying to make the world better. I got to play my role. I got to find a way to make sure when I hear of people 
that have crawled on their knees to hear the Pope speak, I better get on my knees. I better find my way to show that I can do the same thing to make sacrifices to help others. That's something that, again, my dad and my mom have been. When they took us to see Martin Luther King as a kid speak in Washington, D.C., and to be there amongst all those people and to be out there and to see all of that and to see all these people were committed to the cause of right. And in that kind of moment makes you realize that you don't you don't need to go far when to know and see people that said, hey, that was right. And so that's what I kind of, you know, try to live off of. Do you think the 1980s 49ers, the Super Bowl champions, would they have accepted an invitation to the Trump White House? I think that that team, just knowing the guys and knowing the people, I think that group of guys would have at least looked at all the thoughts and ideas and and tried to find a way to say, you know, what's the best thing that we should do? The reason I say that is that when we went back there and going back there, I went look, Eddie DeBarlo got pardoned recently. And when he went and he asked me to come speak, I was like, yeah, I'm coming. I respect you for all of what you have done for my family and all of what you've given. I don't care who the president is. He's pardoning you. I'm respecting you. I'm there for you. And so I don't get caught up in in that, but I do know that if there are moments where our group and all our teammates, we've had moments. I remember Bill used to say to us, hey, all of us come from all different backgrounds. We're not all the same. And he would say this, but we have to find a way to make sure that we have the the ability to acknowledge that if we do have guys on our team that are Jewish, we got to let them be who they are. And if we have people that are on our team that have certain thoughts and ideas about their beliefs, we got to let them be able to be who they are. To me, Bill was phenomenal. That's why he brought in Dr. Edwards to kind of help us understand a lot about other things other than the game of football and other than the game of just getting in the huddle. That if you are going to get in the huddle, get in the huddle knowing that you stand for something. That you just, you won't fall. You won't fall for anything. That you will stand for something. If you haven't figured it out by now, honestly, I don't know what more I can do. But the Remarkable People podcast is sponsored by the Remarkable Tablet Company. And in every episode, I ask people how they do their best and deepest thinking. You're about to hear Ronnie Lott's answer. The reason why I ask them this question 
is because the Remarkable Tablet can help you do your best and deepest thinking. It's a solo purpose device. It's about taking notes, not checking email, not checking social media, not checking news. So here we go. Ronnie Lott, how he does his best and deepest thinking. How does Ronnie Lott do his best and deepest thinking? What conditions, what time of day, physical surrounding, whatever. How do you do your best and deepest thinking? That's a great question, man. I think, I think my best and deepest thinking is about waking up in the morning. It's like waking up in the morning, getting ready to play a game. When you're getting ready to play a game, your best and deepest thinking is how much does it mean to you? How much does the day mean to you? How much does the moment mean to you? And are you prepared to understand that all the things that are going to be presented to you that day are going to be some celebrations? There's going to be some moments that are going to go against your thoughts and ideas, just like you posed a question about Trump. The, the bigger thing is, are you willing to understand? Are you willing to understand what everybody's going to say? I used to see my dad as a recruiter for the Air Force, and I used to sit there and watch him understand a lot of people. I remember when the general said, hey, I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you. And, and I remember thinking to myself, here's a general that literally decided to understand my dad and his needs. And it made me understand that, that some people see people and they try to help them out. They try to give them. They just, and I want to be one of those kind of guys. I want to be one of those kind of guys like that, that was like this general. And my point to you is that your deepest thinking comes from the start of the day of knowing that God has given you a chance to be your best self again. And then the question is, are you going to go out and exhaust every moment of it? Try your best and know that you're going to fail. You're going to, you're going to, and then, you get to do it all over again. And in this environment with the COVID situation and all of what we've gone through, hey amen, playing in bad weather is not fun. Playing when it's cold outside is not fun. But I learned, and I know that in those tough moments, I can still figure it out. And I think that there are a lot of human beings right now at, at the end of this, we're all trying to figure it out and we're going to get better for it because we're going to find a way to be able to see our best selves. And we're going to find a way to wake up the next day, trying to make plays 
And that's how I live my life, trying to make plays. I will say this. There are a lot of plays I miss. <laughs> and there are plays that, that are not perfect. But in, the, in what he has given me to do, I still know I have a lot more to do to help a lot of people. And I feel really good about where I'm at in my life. And I feel really intentional about continuing to win Super Bowls. It's a, and to win Super Bowls meaning, hey man, you just got to be in the right huddle with the right people. And hopefully I'll be able to continue to get in some great huddles with the right people and making really a difference really around the world. That would be the ultimate moment to be able to say, hey, you look back and you did do some things that helped people see a different perspective on life. I think this interview of you is going to do that. It's going to help people see a different perspective on life. So, Ronnie Lott, you are the man. Thank you Thanks, so God, much for man. doing this. It, yes, it's, great. it's great hanging with you. And it's great knowing that... It's great knowing that you had the love of the game, man. <laughs> When I was in high school, there were only two seasons. There was football season and preparing for football season. <laughs> <laughs> you try to explain to people what that feels like. Yeah. And what all I know is that the people that understand the commitment of getting ready for any of these things that they do in their life and that you get to see it and you get to feel it, It's, it's some of the greatest stuff. It's yeah. some of the greatest medicine. Our coach used to have us lay down in the gym, and we would sit there and lay down in the gym before the game and and just think about all the great things yeah. that were going to happen in that game, man. That's what we do now. I, I lay down in the bed sometimes <laughs> go, man, how lucky am I that, man, I get to think about doing something great the next day. I hope you enjoyed this interview with one of the greatest players in the history of the NFL. Truly a remarkable athlete. I love the concept of exhausting life. I hope you learned that lesson from this episode. Exhaust life. I'm Guy Kawasaki, and this is Remarkable People. My thanks to Jeff C. and Peg Fitzpatrick, who exhaust podcasting. And make me, in the words of Ronnie Lott, love podcasting. All the best to you. Mahalo and aloha. This is Remarkable People.